Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Drew Meredith, welcome to... Well, it's nine forty-eight, but welcome to Noosa. <laughs> Thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's great, mate. We're recording October tenth, Monday, because we're in Noosa for the Inside Network event. And what beautiful weather out there! It's wonderful. If you're watching the on the video, you can see lots of grey clouds and <laughs> torrential rain. <laughs> <laughs> torrential rain. When I pulled up in the plane, um, sounds like it's my plane. It wasn't. <laughs> it was just like I was in there with about five hundred kids. But um, when I was, just landed, it was just bucketing down. Yeah, like unbelievable. Just more time to learn. I think is, yes. is the key to that. You know what I did on the plane is I actually wrote up my thesis on Dubber. While I was on the tr- on the plane, I saved all the annual reports, read them, and then wrote that up because I knew I wouldn't have any for Warren Buffett on the way here. That's it. Yeah, yeah. I actually, actually, I'm going back and reading somewhere over there. Um, the making of an American capitalist. Have you read that book? No, I haven't had that. That's good. It's really yeah. good. Yeah. He, um, it talks about because it's like just after it talks about like his journey after the Depression era, learning from Ben Graham, and like a lot of people talking about recessions and high inflation and all that sort of stuff now. But if you just read about his journey, it, you just follow it, right? and it just you just see it. Just the stuff just plays out. Yeah, yeah. Finding cigar butts and yeah. Um, we're recording nine podcasts today. This is, I think, this is a world record. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, short. Sure. We're, we're supposed. We usually you know, we usually go over time, so I'm not sure. We've got yeah. eight hours to record nine. We probably need fifteen hours. Yeah, <laughs> we'll probably be here at midnight. <laughs> So, guys, yeah. Um, no, but we are here for the Inside Network event. We are surrounded by um, lots of consultants, um, portfolio construction ex- experts, advisors, some of the best advisors in the country. So, hopefully, we can get them even for 20 minutes in here to, to talk with us. And they'll appear on the Australian Investors Podcast as like more, more uh, short form episodes. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're going to talk a bit today about we're going to do a two cents episode. We're going to answer some questions, a lot of questions sent in. Kind of a medley. We've got questions about lithium, of course. <laughs> We've got questions about- All of them are about lithium. In <laughs> yeah, some way, everything ties back to lithium. Um, it's, it's like Bitcoin before it. Now, um, and then we've got, we've got questions about equal weight versus non-equal weight tracking error, um, which we might riff on a little bit. And uh, yeah, some really good questions. If you do have questions for Drew or I, or even on the business podcast, uh, the- finance podcast with Kate and I, please just send them through. Head to any of the Rask websites, 
uh, there's a question, there's a thing at the top in the menu that says ask a question. Pretty straightforward. <laughs> just click that button. I get a lot of questions coming through Twitter, Instagram, etc. Please just send them through there so we can keep on top of them and we can get your question answered. Um, we will answer questions today. We've asked for funny names. It's a bit of a lighthearted take this episode that we do basically weekly now. Just remember, it's general advice only. We, uh, we don't know your personal circumstances. If you do want to see a financial planner, just like Drew here, uh, you can head to the Waddle Partners website or find your financial planner near you using one of the like the ASIC website or whatever works for you, um, but because we just don't know his personal situation. So, Kate, uh, so um, Drew, I said Kate, let's, let's go with Drew. Um, let's answer some questions. So, I grouped the first two questions together. Maybe we'll just take them both, you know, yep, together. Definitely. Um, Bang Goes asks, future of EV, go all in on lithium companies while shares are still low or branch out and spread portfolio over multiple other minerals companies that make up a battery, i.e. nickel, cobalt, etc. Second question related to this, if you thought that one was good, from Nate. Nate says, I've just started investing. <laughs> Had a quick- Well, well done. <laughs> well done. Great. Yeah, no, it's awesome. Nate, yeah. the first- it's the first is it. part is the hardest. Yes, definitely. Yep. Um, had a quick conversation with a day trader who was telling me about Sayona Mining, a lithium company. Uh, he just wanted to know your opinion on the lithium sector and your thoughts on it and how it might perform in the long run with mass introduction of lithium-powered cars. True. That's a <laughs> tough one first up. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think the first question, you have to assume that the first question, they're talking about a portion of their portfolio. So, when someone says go all in on lithium companies, no, I yeah. assume that means, you know, 5% of my equity allocation, I'm just going lithium. So, generally, don't go all in on a single commodity or even commodities in general. Yep. It would be the first starting point. Um, and then, I mean, lithium and batteries, it's so, uh, I think you, so they've said there that it's, it's quite low at the moment. Well, I think the sector has been on exceptional run for the last oh, yeah. last few years. So, I find it incredibly difficult to understand what the outlook and the long term, mm. you know, what the long term price looks like. It seems like every single time at the moment, prices are going up, lithium companies are going up, but there seem to be more companies mining lithium than ever. And yeah. I think apparently it's one of the most abundant resources. It's just very difficult to process. So, commodities tend to be cyclical. You know, high prices breed more production, mm -hmm. breeds lower prices. So I'm always wary. I'd say, if this is an allocation within an equity allocation uh, within an equity portfolio, then yeah, look at some of the other commodities as well, the yep. cobalts, the nickels, because you know, technology moves pretty quickly. So we might have non-lithium batteries or less lithium going into batteries as well. Yeah, I hear. Uh, I agree. Um, I think we had a lot of questions on this a few weeks ago. Start at the ETF level and work your way down is what yeah, I would say. Definitely. And if you did that, I think you'd find that Sayona Mining, while it has gone up pretty strongly recently, um, it's probably less impressive than Pilbara Minerals, which um, is probably the standout pure play lithium company in Australia at the moment. We spoke in the office a little while ago about how that company has turned to free cash flow. And I think every you have one of those. It's yeah. like Fortescue and Iron Ore. Then everyone follows and they're like, it could be the next- you know, yeah. Fortescue, it could be the next Pilbara. <laughs> Go all in on lithium companies. Bang goes, don't know who you are, but please just remember that investing is a marathon, not a sprint. And a lot can go wrong in mining too, oh, which yeah. is particularly at the moment, you know, labor costs, energy costs, fuel costs, everything is mm. going up at the same time that, you know, you're trying to sell your commodity at a high price. I prefer, like, 
I would. The thing about the ACDC ETF from Global X, just so you know, um, is it doesn't just invest in lithium. Yeah. And I think that's actually a good structure because it removes the focus on mining, which Drew was mentioning, is cyclical, capital intensive. Like inside that ETF, when I looked recently, there were companies like Tesla, BMW, alongside businesses that focus on battery technologies. Yeah. So you get a lot more, and what, they call it a value chain. You get a lot more. Chain, yeah. yeah. And I think that's that should be a first point of call. And still, even then, for me, one commodity, one sector, it's still got to be in that like tactical kind of like satellite allocation. It can't be in the. Yeah, a small portion yeah, within small. an equity allocation. Yeah. So, please, Nate, great job starting investing. It's the hardest thing to do, especially now when the market's really volatile. Yeah. It actually is interesting. I think that's the best time to start because if you can do it now, you can handle it later yeah. on. Well, you look, I'm talking to clients this week with, you know, difficult period uh, in the last three months. But you think about where we were 18 months ago with bond yields next to zero. Mm. Markets at all-time highs. Well, now you've got markets that are off twenty to thirty percent in most parts of the world, and and you can get four percent from a government bond now. Yeah, it's actually a much better time to be deploying capital than eighteen months ago. So for sure it is. So great job starting, Nate. Um, I would just say, Nate, um, one of the things you've got to learn when you're new in it as an investor is it's a very steep learning curve, and there's so much information coming at you very quickly. Take your time. Start as small as you possibly can. Um, that's not specific to you, no, it's just specific to anyone that's starting because I feel like it's one of those things, they say in business, if you can survive the first two years, you're all right. Yeah. Um, if you can survive the first three years in investing, I think you're going to do all right. It's just getting to that line. So, um, start small, learn what you can and also just understand who you're getting information from. If you're talking to a day trader, that's going to be totally different to the information that Drew and I yeah, espouse. So, um, Sure, have some exposure to lithium, I think, is the conclusion, but not all in, um, however, that's de defined. Um, this is a good question. It's more like ETF related, which is, um, it's go long or go home, like it. Uh, <laughs> when I look at the US listed IVV ETF, it seems to be more closely tracking the S&P 500 compared to the Australian listed IVV ETF. So, obviously, IVV ETF here in Australia is one of the biggest US-focused stocks, ETFs. True. Yep. I, I think the reason, just looking at it, is that the Australian IVV is an unhedged version. So, that means, you know, if you, the US-listed IVV is investing in US dollars, the Australian-listed IVV is investing in Australian dollars into the same index. So, there yep. should be a difference in it probably perform, the Australian should have performed better than the US if you looked at them. If you compare the US IVV to IHVV, they should be nearly identical. Mm. But I know there's a slight fee difference. I think the the US versions are something like 0.04%, maybe the Australian versions 0.08 in terms yeah, of fees, but that wouldn't be much to- I think it's, um, yeah, you're right. I think it's uh, about 10 basis points yeah. all in. So, at 0.1% for those of you playing along in English. Um, so, yeah, there's quite a bit of difference. What we can also see, which go along and go home, this wasn't uh, talked about here. But what can also happen is if you have an Australia domiciled fund investing into the US, that can um, that can bring up some issues with uh, tracking error because um, the fund in Australia then has to invest in the US and it, use, it could use derivatives, it could use different things to invest that money across. So, and while the market's closed. While well. the market's closed, yeah. So, you can miss out on a bit of that. Now, that said, it looks like the IVV ETF, um, you know, up 41% over five years. 
uh, sorry, the SPY ETF in the US, which is the S&P 500. Um, does it like, we're probably splitting hairs a bit here, I would say. Does it like, do you, would you, does this factor into your thinking? Like you could go and get an exposure from, you know, a US yeah. stock. Yeah. Or would you just buy the ASX listed thing? If it's the S&P, I just buy the ASX listed. Yeah. Easier, less paperwork, reporting simple. Yep. Don't have to do any W8 Ben E forms. Yes. <laughs> you have to yeah. do when you're investing overseas. So yep. and you can and you can easily hedge it and implement it during yep. your daylight hours rather than having to trade it overnight or hope hope your trade goes, yep. goes through efficiently. Um and uh, yeah, I, I agree. Like there, there are two vehicles here in Australia that you can get exposure through. You've got IVV and you got IHVV, IHVV being hedged, slightly more expensive. Um that basically just comes down to your view on currencies. And I probably wouldn't be basing that on short-term swings in currencies, but maybe longer-term views on that yeah. um, in particular. So, um, great question because tracking error, which is the difference between an index and an ETF, basically, yeah. uh, is not talked about a lot, especially amongst um, newer investors. So, uh, I yeah, ASX listed for me. Um, Shri asks, and this is quite a long question and um, it's a good one. What do you think about EML payments and Tyra as of today? These have been an investor favorite for a long time and no matter how bad the dip was, they always bounce back. Currently, they're trading at $0.82 cents and $1.28. That's think that's slightly different. And I have been buying the dip and accumulated some shares during the last few months. I am nervous and want to understand what you would do if you had these in your portfolio. P.S. Thank you for the awesome podcast. Smiley face. <laughs> Oh, That's a great nice. question. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm happy to maybe just uh, riff on this for a bit. So, Tyra Payments does the electronic payments where you go and you tap your card. Like an iPad almost, isn't it? Is it? Uh, oh, that's square. The that's, that's square. square. Yeah. yeah. So, the, um, they're kind of a bit chunkier, to be honest. They're kind of, yeah. uh, to be honest, I think they're kind of ugly. Um, <laughs> so, they're like, they're bigger square and you can put your- Oh, like your hand. Yeah, you like can like hand can go inside. Pen. Yeah. So, you don't, someone doesn't steal your pin or whatever. Not that we use pins. I anymore. don't think anyone uses pins anymore. Um, so- that's what they do uh, and they collect a fee. Yeah. And then like they clip the ticket as fees go through. And they were hurt, Tyro were hurt by two things over the past five years. One was the outage that they suffered. That was yeah. like a reputational thing. And the second thing um, was COVID. They do it basically, everything's in store. A lot of merchants and cafes. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Yeah, that it's their target it's, market. It's like that SME. Yeah. Small medium enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's me. Um, when I first said that, I was like, what, what are they talking about? Um, so, yeah, this is a very, very um, competitive market. And previously, I'd recommended Tyro to our members and I sold it. The reason being is that in this space, you have a few players that are very are unique. So, you've got SmartPay, which is the small cap Kiwi company that's expanding to Australia. And its value prop is something called SmartCharge, where it only, it passes all the fees back to the, um, to the customer. So, you know, that surcharge thing, if you get like this coffee here, it's like $4.50, it might add five cents onto it. Yeah. That goes back to the, um, the customer. Um, that's, that's SmartPay. Tyro can do that as well. Um, the other thing that, the other one that's in the space by like is a clear, clear competitor is Square slash Block. That's the iPad one you're thinking yeah, of. Yeah. yeah. And the little- The little-, the little yeah. yeah. And those, that business, I think, to be honest, that's been absolutely 
smashed recently because Block in the US has buy now, pay later because they bought Afterpay. Yeah. Exposed to- Crypto. Crypto, lower uh, socioeconomic, typically through the cash app. Um, and they've got like the sellers getting crunched. Yeah. So, that's, I think that's a really interesting business, uh, Shree. If you want to put that on your watch list, it's uh, Block. Uh, SQ2 is the Australian ticker symbol. But um, I think what's happened with Tyro is it's kind of been sandwiched in the middle. It's kind of got like, I don't know what's, like it's kind of like in there. Um, and I don't think the value proposition is that clear, particularly now that management seem so aggressive on spending. Um, they came out not too long ago and said, we're going to keep spending and the business isn't profitable. The barriers in to entry aren't yeah. big either, are they? No, that's the thing. So, one of the things that we saw is like Visa and MasterCard have the power here. Yeah. So, they increased they fees. They get paid regardless too. Yeah, though, that's it. Yeah. yeah. So, they increased fees very modestly and Tyro during COVID didn't pass on that fee increase because they wanted to support their merchants. But I think if they- because And then they got whacked. Their margins got crunched. Yeah. Um, and what happened was they still- I think they still had- I could be wrong about this- between 10 and 11% churn. Even though they didn't increase fees, yeah. So the the true cost of a com- the true sign of a competitive advantage is keeping your customers while increasing prices. Yeah, pricing power. Yeah, exactly. So if you can't increase prices and keep your customers, then you might be it might be a bit of a tough place to be in. So better you know, than better than buy now pay later, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A bit slightly. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's a big talk about this on uh, FinTwit lately that. Um, these payment, many of these payment companies may actually have no terminal value, yeah. Because they, in five years, the industry is changing so fast. Do they actually have any value at the end? We don't know. So that's Tyro. I sold it. Um, I sold it at a pretty bad time. It was on the way down. It's come back up a little bit. You know, it's. I don't think it's to, like going out of business or anything, but it's just one of those businesses that needs to do a bit of work on the cost side. Finally, EML, um, basically everything that could have gone wrong at EML seems to have gone wrong over the past three years. Yeah. Do you know much Legal, about it? Yeah, yeah. This is the prepaid yeah. cards and transfers and they yeah. bought a business in the in Ireland mm-hmm. as well. And then that got in, not them, but the business they bought yeah, got, got into trouble. trouble. Yeah. yeah. And then um, there are a few things recently like fraud as well. Um, just as they were coming to the end of that and the Central Bank of Ireland investigation, th- then there was more fraud basically at the same time <laughs> as they were giving their annual results out. So, um, and whenever you hear those yeah. things, you just yeah. uh, make it simple. Just get out. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's interesting, right? Because- I'm, had- You know, we did talk about my falling knives last time. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's one lesson from that. Just get out as soon as there's bad news. <laughs> um, so- CEO basically, I don't know if he was ousted or he just removed himself and he gave like one day's notice, it seems, yeah. um, after eight or nine years, which is a bit of a shame. There's been some fines, some regulatory stuff. Um, EML is a very complicated business to understand. And the new CEO comes from NASDAQ is her background. Yeah. And she's currently conducting an annual review that will be due out during the AGM, I think, in November. Yeah. So, that's when investors will know a lot more about What's happened? And the t- typically with these types of businesses that expand globally, there's like two types of CEOs. There's the one that comes in and grows it and just grows it and grows it. And then there's the one that comes in and cleans it up. Not yeah. to say that that's what needs to happen, but um, that's typically like the ebbs and flows of business. Like we're going to grow and then we're going to consolidate and we're going to simplify. Um, and I think for the most part, that's what EML needs to do. Um, it's kind of bolted on a heap like a roll up. Yeah. 
yeah. with equity and cash. Yep, exactly. To, and then whether you can, whether all those things work together, you promise synergies and do they come together? The one good thing for EML um, was a couple, but one good thing is that it actually has the float of customer um, deposits. Yep. And that I think is, we'll, we'll run over uh, $10 million annualized now. So, that's just pure net income for them. And now with interest rates higher, so it's like a, it's a little bit of an inflation hedge. Where yeah. You're, it's going to keep going as well. You're so, that margin. For a business that struggled to get that margin recently, that's um, a free kick for them. Yeah. So, that's pretty good. But the thing that's hanging over their head is what happens in Europe with um, basically EML has to make good with the regulator so it can keep winning new customers that want to use its payments network. Um, so, I think for me, it's hold out until November till we know more about EML, but I'm not really convinced about Tyro. My preferred exposure is Block and Smart Pay for said, payments. Struggle with small, mid-sized companies, isn't it? Where yeah, you have to trust what's in the annual report or that they're making the right due diligence when they're making acquisitions. Yeah, and then if it's wrong, the share price just moves significantly compared to. I mean, Block's probably the same, but yeah. Large now it, now it's like small cap US. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> actually, I actually think that- Oh, God, I've got these glasses off my head. Um, didn't forget I had them on there. Uh, <laughs> if you're watching the video, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Drew's got his Tony Stark glasses. Um, so, and we're in Hawaiian shirts. Probably should have made that <laughs> clear from the outset. We thought it was going to be sunny here in New so we're like, okay, let's embrace it. It was warm. And um, we're just a couple of fellas just walking around in- <laughs> At an investment conference. Uh, so, um, so, good question though. Great question. I'll provide an update, Shri, uh, when we get to November. Uh, the next question is actually not a question. Um, confused by marketing. Sounds more like a complaint. Yeah. It, it was someone that like was trying to join our service and this has come through the questions line. They were like, is this $69 upfront plus $10 a month? No. It was $69 for lifetime access to our membership. So, that's like forever. And the new fee is $10 a month, $9.99. So, if you want to become a RASC member, thanks for the free plug. They're confused by marketing. Um, if you want to become a RASC member, it's $10 a month and you get um, research on ETFs. You can join the community. We do live shows and um, yeah, you get some company ideas from me. Thank you. Confused by marketing. Uh, Johannes Gutenberg. Is that- I'm not good with names. Real name. <laughs> it's a real name. It's a real name. Yeah. Okay. This is uh, interesting, um, a company that I have not heard of. Give me your hot take, hot take on IGL. I believe that's the ticker symbol. Mine, it's cheap, well-managed, and now a monopoly player in the Australian printing space. Interesting. So, IGL hadn't heard of it as a business, to be honest with you. Um, seems like a business that basically does every type of kind of like digital, creative, print, uh, creative, uh, all around kind of like- um, a business that is kind of like you could say maybe old school type creative content like marketing and publishing. Um, Revenue, like my deal kind of business as well, Lasso. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's growing. The revenues have been growing pretty fast since 2014. 2014, 278 million dollars up to 760 million in, in 2022. So it's compounding pretty quickly um, at the top line um, in terms of gross profit margins around about 26 percent, um, ebbing down to 23 percent. Operating margins is where it comes unstuck. Actually, it um, can you know oh it's five percent operating margins. So 
This is a business, for the most part, I don't really know much about, Drew, 330 million market cap. What I would say is a business like this can sometimes be outside my circle of competence. There were a few businesses like this that did pamphlets and like the Dropbox. Is it Dropbox? It's old-fashioned printing. Yeah, old-fashioned. Or new-fashioned printing. Yeah. yeah. But um, really interesting business, and I'm going to actually look into it a bit more, and I don't know that much about it. Um, Johanna, so if you do want to write into me again, just send us an email, would you? Um, service at rask.com.au and um, let me know a bit more about the business because I was trying to find a bit more on it and I can't find a lot. Um, seems still too small for some analysts, but expectations amongst uh, analysts is still pretty consistent growth, mid-single digits, uh, EBIT margins slightly improving over the next couple of years. So, don't know much about it, unfortunately, at this time. Um, but maybe it's something that we can look into because I don't mind old school businesses. I tend to tilt toward the negative if you haven't <laughs> met me before. Yeah. Yep. Uh, printing, I know it's getting more popular like custom and, and that yep. sort of printing. But same time, you know, you watch groups like not Brambles, but Amcor and all the input costs going into whether it's energy or paper or pulp, whatever it happens to be. Seems to be a, a lot of pressure at the moment. So, but yeah. I know nothing about it, so I can't really. Well, yeah. One of the reasons that the the company has really surged over the last few years is during COVID, these guys got absolutely whacked, obviously printing and um, what have you, out of home type stuff. But um, there's been a massive multiple expansion. It's, it fell to, you know, two or three times earnings during COVID. Yeah. Now it's back up to around 10 times and it's hovered around eight historically. So, um, really interesting. I, I did notice, I believe the- the directors, some of the directors had sold some shares recently. That's for me, that's not necessarily um, a red flag. I know it is amongst a lot of investors. For me, it's more like an amber colored flag. So, what I would say is just, um, you know, I, I don't know enough about it to have an informed view, but it's definitely one for the watch list, just given the quality metrics. Like I looked there at profitability, cash flows, um, margins, because typically in a in a capital intensive business, you see those lower margins. So, something to keep in mind. Um, the next question comes from Tazzy Tiger. Very animated, it seems, from this short message. The next pro medicus, double exclamation mark. I believe Sia Medical will be a successful global healthcare company soon. If you could buy it now through Series A or B funding, would you? Question mark, exclamation mark. Thanks, Tazzy Tiger. Good question. I'd buy anything if it was the next pro medicus. <laughs> Obviously, ProMedic is up thousands of percent over the past 10 years. Um, Tazzy, this is a- I don't know if it is doing Series A or Series B. Uh, there was one on the NASDAQ, was that- No, it's not- this, that's Sea Inc. Ah, oh, right. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I couldn't find much about this business. Is this um, the ECG? At home ECG? Is that, is that what, is what you is? found? No, oh, I, I don't know. I, I, I was just trying to look for- uh, Yes, it is actually. Yeah. But I was trying to find- um, any sort of like financials on it and I couldn't. I don't know if it is doing a Series A or Series B. Um, did you want to explain what Series A and Series B is? Uh, so, like early funding rounds for private companies. If you start it, you probably started a, if you think about an angel investor stage where you get your, if you're starting a company, you've got technology or a product, mm. you go to your friends and family first or these kind of angel investors who are investing in a lot of different startups and then Series A is kind of your first big raise where you've almost, you're starting to prove up your product. Yep. Uh, and then Series B is just the follow up after that, essentially. <laughs> 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 and that's, you know, this is all pre, 
pre-market, pre-profitability usually, and then I can see myself in the classes. <laughs> <laughs> and then it grows from there. And then you go Series A, Series B, and then probably a bigger raise, and then a pre-IPO, and then an IPO is is how it would usually go if you're if you're still growing at the right rate. Yeah. So, so basically, what Drew is saying there is like this is early stage. Yeah. Um, series A, Series B, and the reality is a lot of companies don't make it through to pre-IPO. Uh, a lot of companies don't, don't make it past Series A. Yeah, Series A, particularly in the medical space. So, the things that I'd be looking at if I was looking at a business like this, and we've got a couple of questions on this, is just you know revenue. Is the is the company revenue positive? Basically, if you're that early, because the earlier you are, obviously, we we're talking to um, some venture capitalists here last night, and they were saying like a lot of these companies are ideas. You know, or they're just people with ideas. They haven't actually done anything, so there's no MVP, there's no minimum viable product. Yeah, and they're investing at that stage and. The further you go down that kind of company, I guess, journey, the newer it is, um, the less kind of like rigorous your fundamental research becomes and more what are the people about? Who yeah. are the people that are involved? So, definitely, those are the types of things that I'd be asking. Is it revenue positive? Um, if it is, how are they managing costs? How is the alignment, et cetera? Um, I've actually got an interview coming up with Matt Vitali on the Australian Business Podcast, which you might find interesting, Tazzy Tiger. Um, I'm actually, Matt Vitali is the co founder of uh, Virtual, which we mentioned yep, a yeah, couple of weeks ago. Yep. A couple of weeks ago. Um, Virtual is the crowdfunding platform that specializes in helping investors get into private companies, yep. small private companies. So that'd be really interesting. If you want to join for that one, Test Targets, Australian Business Podcast, it's the green one from Rask. Go and check that out. If this is the next PME and you've called it, Tazzy Tiger, you are on record. So- um, Is it a product or is it a software? It looks like a product. This? Yeah, it looks like a product. Yeah. You can see the, it's like a radar in your room. Yeah. Home video yeah, EEG. Yeah. Gold standard diagnostics, no hospital visits. Which seems challenging. If you're creating a product, that seems challenging when you're working against some of the biggest healthcare companies in the world, if you think about it. It does. Uh, but if you can execute, then you're a straight up acquisition target. Yeah. Right? I'll just take you out straight away. Yeah. So you can, someone like, you know, Fisher and Paykel, Phillips, something like that. We'll just see it and just be like, thank you. I think it's a natural, you know, most GPs or, you know, hospitals, emergency run off their feet at the moment. So, the more of this at home kind of care and, yep. uh, you know, ability to track important, you know, all, all kinds of monitoring, surely there's a market for it. I think was one of the books I read recently talked about, you know, people try to get the biggest possible market or biggest total addressable market and have a small share of it. Yep. You're more likely want to do what they're trying to do, which is own a very small part of the market and be very good at it, know exactly what it is. Drew, we're going to quickly interrupt this episode of the podcast to hear from our sponsor. There's um the book, um, Value Investing. Uh, who is it by Greenwald and Sonkin? Um, that that book talks about some of the businesses that dominate niche markets yeah. and how valuable they are. They may not be gorillas of like massive TAMs, but they're like gorillas in their big fish in their little ponds and exactly. they are so profitable. And so, yeah, I mean, if you can get on them early, that's fantastic. Like one of those companies that I always refer to is WD-40, you know, the thousand and one uses, that spray. Yeah. That's a company over the last five years, it's up 55%, but it is a company that since um, 1983, it is up 2,100% with dividends along the way. This is a company, and this is, I don't know if it's one product. Split, split adjusted. It just does WD-40. <laughs> so, 
So Everywhere. it's got a few other little things around it, but that's, you know, WD-40 is like the thing that's known for. And um, $2.4 billion company, it hasn't gone and trying to be- Trying to do- That's the other challenge Depot, of being but, on the ASX is the, you know, shareholders in the market constantly wants you to grow by, by doing something. Yep. Whereas sometimes you just consolidate and run a good business. Yeah. And return capital shareholders. Um, Drew, we might play a bit of quick fire in the interests of time here. Uh, I'll ask this. Lucky Phil asks, better buy Pendle or Perpetual? And I think that he's talking about the shares here. Neither. Okay. Um, <laughs> so Pendle is a fund manager. Well, we know we got burned by Magellan. So <laughs> yeah, that's it. Drew is scarred. <laughs> PTSD. And these both start with P. So, <laughs> so there is it. It rhymes. Um, Too many reminders. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, they're in the middle of the, the kind of takeover bid at the moment, aren't they? Have yeah. they or is actually is it going ahead? I can't remember exactly. I mean, it's they're clearly trying to get scale. I think it's 100 billion plus managers together. But you know, investment management. It seems like the you know the proliferation of passive, how popular ETFs are, and a lot of the fees on a lot of the active strategies are still quite high. They haven't come down. Mm. Um, I know, not recommending it, but we've used the GQG. Yeah, GQG strategies. They're listed on the ASX as well. Yep, and they're. Fees significantly lower than everyone else, so it kind of feels like everyone's going to have to reduce at some point. Mm. Um, whether that happens or not is another story. So that's a question of are your margins sustainable? Same problem that Magellan's going through at the moment. And Platinum's probably the one that's stuck to its knitting and hasn't really moved, but its share price has just slowly dwindled. Yeah, um, and flows too have been following suit. Even when they perform well, they yeah they can't get the share price up. Yeah, if you like this lucky feel, I'd probably look at something like Pinnacle. Uh, PNI is the ticker symbol, uh, or GQG, as Drew suggested. Um, it basically comes down to flows and fees. Yeah. How much money can you get in? How much can you charge? Um, because a lot of them with their performance hasn't been, particularly with like perpetual over the years, hasn't been um, super impressive. So they're not earning those massive, massive performance fees like Magellan did for all those years. Yeah. Um, living the dream, rookie investor. It says, if using personal bank account, e.g., Comsec NabTrade to invest. Do I still need a share registry account uh, for them to track my tax file number, or will it be given to them from my, by my bank? Similarly, if I am trading through a super account, will they provide my details to the share registry? I'll answer the first one. You still need your share registry account. Um, Comsec or NabTrade may send your tax file number through to the share registry. Should yeah. should, but. Just go and check it because it makes it's so easy. You can log in using your holder identification number, which is available inside Comsec. Just don't think it's on the portfolio tab. It's kind of like hidden there. Use that. Log into Computer Share. Log into Link. Create yourself an account. Put your tax file number in. Put your information in. Opt for mark. Uh, uh, what is it? Paper, not paper statements, but digital like email preferences. Yep. Um, and set up your DRP, your dividend reinvestment plan from there. Computer Share and Link are kind of like. The computer share link, boardroom, Automic. Yeah. Uh, there's a few more as well. That's a challenge that you have five different logins for these things. So we've found we use the advisor initiated platforms and they all update the TFN for you and yep. the bank account for each investment only when you buy it. So if you're transferring yep. something in, then you need to be careful and make sure it's updated. Yeah. So just go in, just do it because it's um, 
It's so you don't get to choose the share registry. Just an FYI, if you are a new investor, you don't get to choose. The company chooses the share registry, or the ETF provider chooses it. So, like all of BetaShares ETFs are Link Market Services, for example. Yeah. Um, so, if you own a BetaShares ETF, you'll have to get a Link Market Services account to put all your information in. Um, I'm not sure about the super, but that's probably more an account. That's probably it'd be the same as it'd well. Be the same thing. If yeah, yeah. If it's through a wrap uh, or something, it'll be it'll be all organized. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. Then it it should it'll depend on your broker but most brokers these days are set up to for all new purchases to just pass it straight onto the registry yeah next question uh, no, it's a statement from fiorella i would like to sponsor the podcast well that's great uh fiorella can you please send us an email to service at rast.com.au uh, we do have a lot of sponsors on the show and we're so grateful to self-wealth invest smart and soon uh, i think i can say this we'll have jp morgan so thank you jp morgan for joining us so Wonderful to have you with us. Uh, next question comes from Anonymous because didn't put a name into this section. I thought it was mandatory, but okay. Um, how can I get into the US shares reinvestment schemes? I think they're talking about like dividend DRP, reinvestment, yep. D- DRP, dividend reinvestment plans. I'm considering making my first US share buy in a technology company. I love Apple, don't we all? But not sure about A, reinvestment, B, franking credits, and doesn't matter if it's broker slash direct owner. Um, so, uh, a few things in this. One, you won't get franking credits because it's a US company. Um, it has to be an Australian taxpaying company to get franking credits. Correct, yep. Uh, and the other thing is uh, a lot of the brokers don't offer uh, DRPs or reinvestment. So, you have to take your dividend as cash. Because technically, you don't. You, it's not like you have a HIN like in Australia. Yeah. You almost share a HIN yeah. overseas because they have a custodian that, that handles all that, all that. So, obviously, if- Thousand different investors wanted to DRP. How do you split up the exactly units on the other end and deal with the tax? Yeah, yeah. So in Australia, there's a slight difference, as Drew was saying. You are individually identified as the investor who owns a particular share. Yeah. Whereas in the US, you're all bundled together. So and particularly the platforms that are investing overseas from Australia. Yeah, those ones. Um, I think there are some there are some platforms in the US which probably could offer this. But for the most part, you can just get the cash dividends and reinvest them. If you are going to invest in US shares, just remember to fill out that W8 Ben form, as Drew just mentioned. <laughs> that minimizes your withholding tax. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you got to fill it out, I think, every three years. Is it three years? And I'm sure most of these platforms, you could set an automatic trade anyway, if you wanted to buy more Apple on a quarterly basis. I think we've talked in the past, yes. though, about not having too small. Like if you're doing, yeah. don't do a $100 trade or you know build it up. Otherwise, you're just going to get eaten up by transaction costs all the time. Yep. Uh, so, great question. Uh, this is a long one from Cassie, long-time RAS member. Um, lots of lots of feedback here. Um, so, there was one question, uh, VAS or VHY? For a near 50-year-old, this is strictly hypothetical, Cassie, thanks for sending it through, um, which would be a better pick? I, I feel like I'm 40. <laughs> I feel like I'm 28. <laughs> I'm still 21. Actually, uh, people tell me I'm 12. <laughs> <laughs> Look at the shirt. Um, so, Drew, we've, we've spoken about this. So, uh, Cassie goes on to say, from podcasts, I get the feeling VAS is first choice for the general community. However, recently, you and Drew mentioned if nearing retirement, VHRI may be better for dividend income. Which would you tell your older cousin to go with? Tough question. I think it, it probably depends on the rest of your portfolio is probably relevant as well. Yep. And I'd see, as we've talked about, the VAS ASX 300 tracking, that's like your low cost core, get exposure to everything. VHY would be more of a tactical tilt towards yep. high dividend paying stocks because it's always going to buy the highest dividend payers from the last six or 12 months. So, at the moment, there's a lot of resources in there and energy 
whereas before there would have been a lot of banks. Uh, so uh, honestly, they you can I'd be using both. It doesn't. I don't think it one precludes or excludes the other. Mm. Um, and yeah, def, you you run the risk of having too much exposure to those momentum or higher income sectors mm. as they potentially roll off as well. So, mm. good point. Um, so VAS is Vanguard Australian shares, three hundred shares, yeah. give or take. Yeah. VAS is anywhere between sixty and eighty depending on when it rebalances. Yeah. And it focuses on companies with forecast dividends. Yeah. Um, VHY. Yeah. VHY, sorry. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you're going to get more yield because you're, gonna, you're selecting dividend paying stocks with VHY. Um, you just get the risk that you get more in income than potential yes. growth. But as you were saying a little while ago, it, a lot of your clients are- retirees who are yep. in that kind of like neutral, low tax environment, yep. which makes sense to harvest as many franking credits That's as you can. Three to 4% yep. franking, yeah, definitely. Whereas VH, uh, VAS, which is the regular one, it's like a typically a 4% yield yep. or thereabouts. Um, you're, you're probably going to get more growth like from those businesses. But, yeah, and you've got some mid caps in there. Yeah. You're much more concentrated in VHY yeah. as well. And so, the overall basket size is what Drew's trying to say here is- Think about them as basically one exposure, but you're just pushing one towards this particular type of company. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, that wouldn't be like you're not diversified if you have VHY and VAS and that's all you got. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, Drew, like the one of the, the concerns that we get in the RAS community, in the core community, is um, people are getting to that stage where they say 50 to 60, they'd like to retire in 10 years. They know that if they sell v VAS, they're going to incur tax. Yeah. And it's probably a big position for them. They don't want to sell it. So, what do they do there? If they want to focus on that yield and retirement, do they just slowly take the dividends from VAS and slowly reinvest them back into VHY? Was that what you did? Depends where you're holding it. If you're close personal, to retirement. Personal account, yeah. say. Yeah. Not, yeah. Just wait it out until you retire and your tax yeah. <laughs> tax bill goes down. True. Uh, yeah. I mean, we'd be the way we always view portfolios is try to review them quarterly and slowly rebalance. So, there's no need just because you retire to get your portfolio exactly where it needs to be overnight. Yep. We've got most clients we talk to will do it over three, four, five years where you, you, know, you don't want to realize, realize realizing capital gains is, you know, mm. that money's gone straight to the, the tax department. You can control it as much as possible. So, I'd always build it up over time. Make sure you're not reinvesting if, if that's uh, you're seeking to add diversification um, and then introduce yeah, multiple other things on the way through. I like it. Yeah, I, I, I think both are great ETFs, to be honest. So, um, one you can tilt towards if you want more income. If you're a high income earner, obviously, you want to avoid crystallizing any tax, yeah. whether that's income or capital gains, while you can. Um, Gussie does go on to say that, uh, I enjoy your podcast with Drew. You two are very comfortable and natural together. Fun banter makes my cycle to work enjoyable. Be careful on that bike there, Cassie. <laughs> Too comfortable sometimes. <laughs> Too comfortable. Um, so, if you have any more questions, Cassie, please send them through. There was this presently VAS yield is above VHY. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, so, she said, sorry, yes. Um, I think that's just because of BHP. Probably. Like BHP just paid and Fortescue. It could also be, she might also be close, uh, quoting distributed capital gains. Yep. So, um, when you see the yield on 
the ETFs. I'll just quickly get it. Yeah. And when you see the yield on some ETFs, it looks like it's a lot higher than it actually is because of the, um, they actually, some of the websites report total distributions and total distributions can actually include capital gains. So, um, just keep that in mind. What you want to look at, if you go to the Vanguard website in this instance, they actually quote something called equity yield. Sounds a bit, Real, uh, weird, but it's their estimate of what the dividends are. And that's probably the way. So the equity yield on, uh, what's this? This is VHY. Equity yield is around about 5.8% forecast. Uh, for VAS, it is 4.4%. So that's, that's the true thing that you should be looking at. Like if you go to some of the providers' websites, like I think this is, BetaShares is trying to do a better job of it, but, um, it looks like the yield's really high. Um, but it's actually just distributed capital gains. That's the unique thing about trusts and ETFs, ETFs are unit trusts. Yeah. So they have to distribute all profit every year. That's why you get this big lump in yep. July if it's been a strong year for the market because it's capital gains and income. Yep. Um, but everyone just views it as being income even if it reduced the capital value. And that's why some of those yield harvesting ETFs are rubbish. Yeah. Because they- <laughs> Strong words. <laughs> 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 but, oh geez, I'm just going to put my head down now. <laughs> so, did I just say that? Um, no, but, but it's true. Like some of them, if you look at it, like it's, okay, they do their job in retirement, zero tax environment. You know, if you, you know what you're getting, you know what you're doing. Not, I don't think everyone that buys them knows what they're buying. Yeah, that's if you buy one of these ETFs and you think oh, it's got 10 percent yield, that's great. That's probably not going to be sustainable. So, where is it coming from? Yeah. It's coming from your share price falling over time. And depreciate. You're buying a depreciating asset. Yeah. Essentially, it's being sold poor partially every every month. And I sh- rubbish was very strong. <laughs> For those in retirement, that, that could work because you harvest franking credit. Can you hear that shovel? <laughs> I'm digging. Okay, let's just move <laughs> on to the next question. Going deeper. <laughs> okay. Three more questions. Miss ETF. Um, for long-term international share exposure, how would you compare the more concentrated IOO ETF with the more diverse VGS ETF? Well, I can tell you straight away, yeah, you're right. It's concentration. That's what it's all about. IOO, I think, is four, 0.4% in fees. VGS is a lot lower. So, iShares 100 versus an MSCI tracking uh, all world. That's yep. what the VGS is? Yep. Um, I think what well, we kind of see the way we build portfolios for most people is a core satellite. So, you get a really low-cost core that gives you a big market exposure. Mm. You know, investments is one of the only markets in the world where you get, I'm quoting this from somewhere else, you get the, <laughs> I can't remember who it was, it wasn't Animal Spirits, um, <laughs> where you get average for free. So, like you can buy the average for market. Essentially, yep. you're paying four basis points for the average. What other industry do you get the average for? You either pay more than you need to or you, you're the product and you get charged and don't know about it. Yep. Um, I think I kind of like both and have used both. The MSCI is the, the global benchmark. That makes sense as your core. And then your IOO, you know, the VGS is always going to have about 65% in the US, not much exposure to Europe or Asia or anywhere else. Whereas the iShares 100, I know it's still US focused, but it introduces a lot of big European, you know, healthcare consumer staples, a lot of those sectors that aren't as prevalent in the US and offer some pretty good diversification. So I'd say boring old core in VGS and a bit of a, Global diversifier in, in IOO. I like that, yeah. Um, some people in the past have said, some experts have said that you go with IOO for the liquidity yeah. because it's a, it's a very liquid ETF. iShares is bigger. Yeah, because yeah, you get the top 100, which is very easy to trade. To be honest, I think we're past that now as an industry. Yeah. 
Um, well, we've gone through a couple words. of crises and there was no problem with, with uh, volume or quantity, yeah. even in the bonds, which you'd think are less yeah. liquid than equities. We did have no a few problem. issues in the GFC, though, with bond ETFs. Yeah. But other than that, since then, it's been pretty- I mean, Yeah, pretty, 2020 was- It's fine. I think it was like commodities that were the biggest struggle. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, as Drew said, IWO has 74% in the US. Um, and I think for, for the VGS ETF, it's 71%. Yeah. You've got so many more holdings in the VGS ETF. You've got about 1,500 versus 100 from yeah. IWO. I like, as Drew said, I like VGS for low costs over IWO. But to be honest, I also like for my core, the IVV ETF, which is what we've spoken about. Straight S&P 500. Straight yeah. S&P 500. Good regime in the US from a um, regulatory perspective, from a governance perspective. Yeah. You also, uh, 30, about 30% of revenue from S&P 500 companies comes from outside the United States. Yeah. So, as globalization has taken over, a lot of these US companies, like we use Apple products, right? So Everywhere. Yeah. So, you get global exposure through the revenue, not necessarily through the company headquarters, if that makes sense. So, I think all three of those ETFs, IO, VGS, IVV, all pretty solid ETFs. They've been around for a while. And, and you're talking about real core ones. Yeah. And, and whether you're, you want to take that active view of- uh, getting some a broader range of global companies and your weightings will obviously be different with 100 companies versus 1,500. Yep. Um, but yeah, you're not talking about you know, questionable non-core investments there. Yep. They'd happily sit in any portfolio. Yeah, agreed. Um, second last question, ETF and fun, which <laughs> follows Miss ETF. I wonder if they're related. Is that a copy uh, of Boat and Camping? Fishing? I feel like BCF. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like it. No, dude, it rolls off the tongue. Clearly, ETF and fun. Clearly on our level. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, are equal weighted ETFs that track the ASX 200, 300 or S&P 500 worth getting to diversify across industries in a portfolio? We, as I probably said before, the way we build portfolios to try to invest for multiple outcomes. The challenge with building an Aussie core portfolio is that if you just buy the index, you get 50% in two sectors. Yeah. So, we kind of like uh, MVW. That's in our ETF model. Uh, because it, um, yeah, it's, there's a few, you know, things to watch out for with it. But you, whilst I think we talked about it before, whilst the sector exposure isn't that much different, the number of companies and the, about and the type of companies yeah. is very different. So the, you know, materials, I think are still the highest weighting like they are in the ASX or the banking sector in the ASX 200. But the companies that make that up, you've got some of the lithium companies are in there, the Linuses and these kind of groups, because it's, you know, the, I think the, every holding is between 1% and 2% yep. versus the benchmark where BHP is 10 and CBA 7. Yep. So, we, we like it. It's part of our core uh, offers, yeah, as you said, diversification of sectors and individual companies. Um, and for the US, if you do go equal weight in the S&P 500, it does change that sector weighting considerably. A lot more than, yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Because you, you skew away from communication slash IT, basically. So, your Googles, your- Apples, yeah, uh, Microsofts, that is all equal weighted. So, that pushes way out. Um, so, you do get more of exposure to every other sector basically at the expense of IT. Yeah. But here in Australia, if you do do the equal weight, it's very similar. You still got banking, you still got resources. You just got the, like you said, the spread of companies is different. Yeah. Um, and the attribution because everything's one or two percent. Yeah. Uh, I would say, yeah, I. it's interesting because- the one, one of the reasons that people don't like straight vanilla index funds like VAS, A200, et cetera, is because we talked about this off air, yeah. the momentum shift. So, people think the index funds are momentum driven. 
but it's actually momentum by sector as far as I can tell. Yeah. So, you're, you're moving more into sectors, not necessarily individual companies on valuation. Yeah. Which is interesting. So, people are like, oh, it's all the, the stock market over the past 30 years is momentum driven. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, but it's not just like one thing that's happened this whole time. It's a constant shuffle of those companies. Yeah. So, do you lose some of that upside by going equal weight? Yeah, I think that's it's almost the anti-momentum. Whereas one of the selling points they have is that you're always because it, you you're always equal weighted or semi-equal weighted. You're always selling the winners and buying more of the losers. Yeah, and as I've learned, don't buy the losers. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it does add some level of discipline. So that's the risk that you you're not allowing the momentum of the market to mm. run, and you're missing out on it. Yeah, but that's but that's what if you want diversification, if you need diversification, we think you know in drawdown and and retirees, you do need that diversification to smooth the journey a bit. Yeah. Um, do you use okay? So, well, just backtrack. Equal weight means that you just every company in the portfolio is yep. has the same weight at the rebalance date. Yeah. So if there's ten positions, it's ten percent. Whereas market cap, which is traditional size, index, just based on just, size, just the size of the company. The biggest one gets the biggest share, yep. etc. Which is counterintuitive when you think about it. Yeah, it's better than in uh, bond markets though, where yep. it's like based on total debt. The most, is, <laughs> most geared company gets the most yeah. money. Um, so. Then do you blend the MVW equal weight ETF? This is from Van Eck, yep. with other equity ETFs. Is that like uh, yeah? So VAS? we depends on the client. Sometimes VHY, okay, um, and VAS or uh, IOZ. I think yeah, it's yeah. IOZ. Yeah, yeah, the ASX two hundred. Two hundred. Yeah. Yeah, and then you blend it with an equal weight, and then you you know we've got pretty good systems that we use that can tell you where your ultimate sector. Bias sits and yeah. and what factors you're exposed to as well. That's important to know if you're adding more cyclical in your portfolio via MVW or how exposed are you to those cyclical sectors. Yeah, cool. I like it. Good question, ETF and fund. You can take that on multiple levels. Um, I don't. Use, I haven't used the MVW ETF, but could do. Um, there are many different ways to slice it. Uh, investing Questor. Uh, good question. Investing Questor. Uh, that's the name, sorry, not the question. <laughs> so, when looking at a fallen stock price of a SaaS company, Don't. what company metrics do you prioritize to see if it's cheap due to the market? None. Or if, it, or if it is rightfully down. <laughs> Drew. None. Drew is the- None. <laughs> Drew. Drew. Knife. Yeah. <laughs> Falling knife. No, well, SaaS company. So, let's just break this apart. SaaS company is a software as a service company, like a cloud company. Zero. A lot of companies claim to be SaaS without being SaaS. Actually being SaaS. Yeah. The difference between software and SaaS is pretty key. Like software can be anything. It can be sold anyway. Uh, Perpetual licensing. It can be on contract, like $100 a month. But SaaS companies have the ability to increase prices retrospectively across every user. Like Adobe yeah, or Adobe. Microsoft. Yeah. The perfect examples. Yeah. yeah. So, if you joined Microsoft in 1999 for 10 bucks a month, your fees would have increased each and every month. That's an example yeah. of them. Like, that's a, pretty much a SaaS business model in action. And the benefit of these businesses is that they're sticky. Uh, they have high margins because they're software. Um, but they also have downsides in that they're extremely expensive companies to own at times because yeah. they are such high quality. That's where the price to sales ratio became popular in 2020. Yeah, and that's probably what you're referring to. How do you, how do you value a, yeah, you know, a tech company? It used to be price to sales, but most people would say, 
price sales are re- is irrelevant yeah. if you're not making cash. In a high interest rate environment, yeah. you want companies to prioritize cash flow yeah. so they're not burning through and then diluting each other, uh, dil- diluting you as a shareholder. Um, one of the things that you can do investing Questor is you can actually look at the company through a life cycle lens. So, yeah. early days when it's scaling, you probably you can't use the price earnings ratio. You can't use a discounted cash flow. Analysis. So, how are you going to value? You're probably going to use sales. If you're probably if you're a venture capitalist, you're not going to go, "What's your PE ratio?" Because they're just they're not even thinking about ease. Like they're not even thinking about the the earnings. <laughs> they're years away from that. So you have to have a model that you apply to that. Then, as the company reaches the tipping point and crosses the chasm, it's a proven product. It's earning revenue. It's probably spending a lot still as it's scaling. Then you can start to look at things like, okay, what's the gross profit margin? What is your revenue growth? You can start to move further down the income statement. Then as they actually hit an inflection point and they're profitable, okay, the price earnings ratio maybe starts to factor in, but you're probably looking at discounted cash flow analysis at that point. Finally, when the company matures, sorry, Drew, uh, you get to it's stable in its earnings. It's probably not growing as fast and its profits are stable. Um, that's when- and then it starts pivoting. Then it, yeah, then it starts to think, well, how do we keep growing? Um, but that's when you start to get to the um, price earnings ratio level. So, as the company goes on that journey, you should adopt different methods. I always like to default to a discounted cash flow analysis, even though it's got so many um, shortfalls. I know yeah. that. It can be like the Hubble telescope. One minute, you're looking at Saturn. Next minute, you're looking at Jupiter When you, <laughs> if you change one input. Um, so, <laughs> so, just keep it in mind that- there's going to be different tools for different times. For SaaS companies, I still like I, I value zero on a discounted cash flow analysis basis. Yeah, um, I think there's. It's not profitable, I don't even think you know if you're buying SaaS at the moment, pretty much everything's down seventy five percent. It's going to sound crazy, but I don't think valuation matters. Yeah. I think quality of product yeah. and position in the market and growth. Yeah, you no, know, a lot of companies that were, you know, eighty percent more value or two hundred percent more valuable. They're 200% more valuable now than they were, but their share price is down 80%. So, yeah. the key is going to be the product and whether it is truly going to be a, a winner in its market. Because I'm sure, you know, Aussie bond yields are starting to fall. I'm sure yeah. the US will, I could be proven completely wrong, but it's going to be all about the product and if if there's any growth. And honest, most of it, if you're already down 75, 80% on a lot of this sector, I don't think valuation whether it truly reflects that business at the moment. Yeah, there's a lot of sen- negative sentiment. Yeah. The, 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 the growthier the company, the more prone it is to swings in sentiment. Yeah. And what we, the way to measure swings in sentiment is just to you pick a multiple. So, it could be if it's got earnings, you could use price to earnings over time. So, if it's pr- got sales, it's price to sales. And you can see, if you can map that over time, the price to sales ratio, you can see moments of compression where the price to sales ratio falls, and then it goes up again. Like that's expectations. That's the sentiment of investors. And right now, as Drew's pointing out, sentiment is very low. Yeah, yeah. Never seen lower price sales. Yeah. So I would agree. And I, I think your comment about product is most important because if you look at, say, something like Zoom, Zoom has been absolutely walloped. Yeah. It's got like 30% of its market cap in cash. But the problem is, Zoom isn't the Zoom that it was three years ago, where that's the only thing that people use. Now you've got Teams. Now you've got Google Meet. Now you've got Apple FaceTime moving. Like ultra competitive. Ultra com- and so the competitive advantage, that time advantage that it has, has changed. Yeah. So what I would say to you is, um, just look at the business through the lens of product. Then look at it over a five-year view. Can it survive to that point and keep growing? That's what yeah. I say. Good Definitely. question. 
Drew Meredith, if people want to find out where to get in contact with you and your financial planning services right around Australia, where do they go? I'm not on Twitter. Can you get on Twitter? Just or is it just like, were you banned or something? No, I, I probably should, but I think I'd probably just tweet too much and- Jamie's on <laughs> annoy it, people. isn't he? Doesn't tweet though. Yeah, he just I watch what everyone else tweet. He's a lurker. <laughs> um, okay, so waddlepartners.com.au. Uh, yeah, we'll be updating our website soon. It uh, needs a few updates. Email me straight through, Drew, at waddlepartners.com.au. Always dangerous. LinkedIn. Yep. DM me on Instagram, <laughs> wherever you want. Um, yeah, cool. I like it. Um, beware imitators. Drew's going famous at the moment, so um, there could be some imposters. Oh, I saw another one of yours, yeah. yeah. I, I still haven't had that, so I haven't had to put the warnings out. Yeah. Um, it's such a pain, honestly. It almost makes me want to get off a lot of the social platforms because – so just to be clear, it's Owen Rask AU on Instagram and Owen Rask on Twitter. Not Owen Rask. And there's no oh. Rask. There's no zero zero. There's no – Underscore no like, crypto, no crypt. If I did, I'm not DMing you about crypto. You can guarantee that. <laughs> DMing me about anything. <laughs> yeah, you'd be the one DMing me. Um, but I'd, I'd love to hear from you anyway. So send in your questions. Um, there's a big button on the Rask websites, any of them that says ask a question. Select the Australian Investors Podcast if you want Drew and I to answer that. We'll be back probably next week. Um, yeah, thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, Two Cents, with Drew Meredith and myself, Owen Rask. Drew, thanks for joining me. Thanks again. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service. Designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.